Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest. I've invited my UCSF geriatrics colleague, Dr. Say Lee, to talk to us about a really important topic, which is the role of prognosis and of estimated life expectancy when it comes to optimizing the medical care of older adults. Dr. Lee is an associate professor in the UCSF Division of Geriatrics and also oversees the San Francisco VA Quality Scholars Fellowship, of which I am a proud graduate. He is an expert on the science of predicting mortality and other health outcomes and on how these predictions can be used to help older adults avoid unnecessary or low-value medical care, such as certain forms of prevention or even overly intensive diabetes care. To help other clinicians and to a certain extent the public make better use of prognosis when it comes to cancer screening and other types of medical care, Dr. Lee co-created the website ePrognosis.org in 2012. Considering prognosis is really key to better medical care for older adults, it's a huge foundational element in what we do in geriatrics. But over the years, I found that most people aren't really used to thinking about prognosis outside the context of a really serious terminal illness, such as advanced cancer. So I'm really thrilled to have Dr. Lee here today to help us all better understand prognosis, when it might be appropriate to stop certain types of preventive care, and other issues that are essential to helping older adults get more of the medical care that helps and less of the medical care that is unlikely to help. Say, welcome to the show. Leslie, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And uh, as you said, uh, you are a proud graduate of uh, UCSF Geriatrics. We are very proud that you (laughs) uh, graduated from our program as well. You've done great. Well, thank you. So let's start with the term prognosis. I would love for you to tell the audience what you have in mind when you use this term, because I think sometimes what we might have in mind may not be what the public might think of. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's not a term that is widely used, I think, in medicine outside of geriatrics. Um, I think it is hues very close to kind of the etymology, which uh, is um, Greek, and uh, gnosis uh, means to know, and pro means to uh, the future. Uh, and so it just means to have a window into what is most likely to happen. And uh, in my mind, I feel like it's very important for a lot of decisions, uh, medical decisions for older adults, um, because until you know what is going to happen when if things go their usual course, then it's not clear to anyone whether a new medication or a new um, um, procedure, a new test is actually going to be helpful unless you know what is going to happen without us doing anything, then it's, I think, difficult to make an informed decision about whether this new thing is going to be uh, worth, uh, worth the effort and the potential risks. Right, right. Well, I think you're getting at something um, really important, which is the idea that the value of any kind of uh, test or treatment or intervention you know, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has to be considered in the context of the person's uh, overall health and the other things that are going on with their health, which, um, which I think people often don't realize, you know, they just want to know is something a good idea or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's probably a little bit unsatisfying, but usually the correct answer is it depends. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I think. And honestly, I do feel like one of the, um, the uh, phrases that I keep coming back to uh, in geriatrics is that in modern healthcare, there's a lot more that we can do than we should do. Mm. Um, and part of what we're trying to get at with prognosis is that we need to figure out what is most likely to happen without 
this test, without this drug. And then once we know that, then we can figure out, well, does this other thing make it more likely that you'll have a better quality of life, that you'll be able to stay in your house longer? Um, but without that first knowledge of what is most likely to happen to you, I think it's very hard to make those next um, uh, estimates of whether something is going to help. Mm-hmm. And um, just coming back to that term prognosis, do you have a sense of how other clinicians or the public think of it? I mean, for instance, one of the things that pops into my head is that is that I can remember kind of, uh, I think, in medical school, them talking about, you know, the prognosis for a specific disease. But that's not really the way that you and your colleagues have been talking about prognosis. Yeah, I think most of the medical textbooks talk about prognosis in terms of a very specific um, uh, disease process where, for example, let's say you have a younger person with this type of cancer. That's really the only problem that they have. And so then the question is, how long are they likely to have disease-free survival? When are they going to, uh, when are they most likely to die? Um, Those sorts of questions are uh, individual disease prognosis related. Uh, When I started thinking about this for older adults, one of the things that quickly came to, I came to realize is that for a lot of older adults, they don't fit into that neat bucket of, oh, they have this one big disease. Most older adults end up having a bunch of diseases, and uh, sometimes one month the diabetes might be the most important, the next month the heart failure may be the most important, but we can't really say like the example that I gave initially of, let's say you have a 40-year-old with cancer, almost all of those patients, the biggest problem they have is cancer, so we can really focus on that as the focus of their prognosis and as the focus of their medical care. The real challenge when it gets to your average uh, 80-year-old is that they have many diseases and we we have to constantly keep our eyes on all of them simultaneously to try to optimize their health. And it's and it's uh, it becomes a much more complicated thing, as you can imagine, when you have two two drugs for this disease, three drugs for this disease, and all the drugs can interact with each other and interact with other diseases. And as you add more and more diseases and more and more medications, it be, can can become quite complicated. And and in my mind, that's where the the art of geriatrics really comes in. Right, right, yeah. Also, just you know, when you're talking about the prognosis of a, a 40 year old person with a certain type of cancer, you know, it, it occurs to me that we talk about prognosis for those situations in a way that's both uh, qualitative and numerical. So, so we might say, well, your prognosis is good, meaning you're likely to be cured or live a long time or you know be saved from this disease. Or sometimes we might say, well, the prognosis is. I guess sometimes they say that you know X percent of people are alive after five years. That's also related to prognosis, right? A kind of uh, summary of what, of what we, we know about the, the statistics for, for surviving. So, so when we're talking about prognosis in the context for our work with older adults who, as you said, often have multiple chronic conditions and not anything really clear to, to focus on, uh, do you similarly find uh, yourself using both kind of qualitative terms, like it's good, it's poor, and numerical terms or, you know, what are some examples of prognoses that you might give or bring up for an older person's case? Oh, yeah, I think that's a, a great uh, point to bring up that I do absolutely in my clinical practice, I would say that when I'm talking to patients, I am uh, talking usually more qualitatively. So um, in my clinic, we'll, uh, I, I may talk about how wow, you know, you've been really sick recently and you've had to go to the hospital twice. Um, You know, we're certainly going to do everything to try to keep things as uh, good as possible. But I have to tell you, these are some pretty concerning things and I'm not sure that we're really going to be able to fix this. Um, and and there we may, I may be talking about a um, prognosis of this may be something that is in uh, uh, several years or something like that qualitatively. Um, whereas when I am thinking more about quantitative prognoses, that is more it when I am trying to decide whether specific um, prevention interventions, certain tests are going to be helpful. And I think um, the, the classic example is 
or is, um, is in cancer screening, um, whether it's colon cancer screening or breast cancer screening, generally what we're doing is cancer screening is going to find cancers today that would have harmed you about 10 years in the future. And so one of the things that we talk about is that if your life expectancy is substantially less than 10 years, you're going to go through all of the the discomfort and the potential for complications for the uh, cancer screening with really very low chance of benefit. So the harms are likely to outweigh the benefits. Uh, and so the t uh, when I am thinking about whether a specific test makes sense, that is when I'm thinking more about quantitative um, uh, prognosis. And when I'm speaking and communicating with patients, I'm usually talking in terms of qualitative prognosis. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk more about that, and especially, you know, that sort of uh, relationship between the two terms, prognosis and and life expectancy, and, and there's so much we could say about the idea of life expectancy. But before we get into that, I remember this was actually, uh, I think, right when I was starting my clinical fellowship in uh, 2006, that you made headlines back then for creating what the Associated Press referred to as a death forecast test. So one of your scholarly uh, articles was not only published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, very prestigious, but it also got picked up by the mainstream press because you had analyzed a, uh, a questionnaire and come to some conclusions about what it uh, predicted about people's uh, life expectancy. Tell us a little bit about that study, what was involved and, and how you, you became interested in this question. Yeah, so I'll uh, talk a little bit about the study. Um, and I think they refer to it as the deadly dozen, your question, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they were... Um, so the, the, the study was specifically to look at how best to identify which patients were going to do better and which patients were going to do poorly. So when we started the study, the state of the art in predicting mortality was really focused on things like age and gender and smoking status and chronic conditions like diabetes or whether you've had cancer. And the study that I undertook was really to see if um, factors that we in geriatrics call um, disability or functional impairments, so whether you have difficulty walking several blocks, whether you have difficulty dressing yourself, whether these sort of factors could improve the prediction of, um, of mortality. And what we found was that these were actually really strong uh, factors that um, I think previously we had thought that mostly if you account for enough diseases that you'll get all of the information that you need. And what we found is that even if you account for many, many uh, diseases, that there's additional predictive information in asking about these uh, very basic uh, activities. Having these disability or functional impairment uh, questions um, really added to the predictive ability and made uh, our index kind of one of the most accurate um, mortality prediction indexes around. I, I have to say I'm a little bit uh, chagrined that, that it got picked up by the mainstream press and got, you know, I think, I think it would be fair to say somewhat sensationalized to say, oh, these are the deadly dozen. I think it was, start, it, mm -hmm. it was introduced as a morbid game for um, aging um, uh, baby boomers. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, that certainly, you know, that was not the academic intent of the um, of the the project. But on some level, I realized that you know, once the work is um, done and published, the uh, the it will have legs of its own, and and there was not much that I could do to uh, recast the um, uh, recast the coverage once it started out that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm looking at your study right uh, now, and I'll certainly put a link to it in the show notes. But yeah, you had these twelve questions that were fairly easy for people to to answer. Mm -hmm. First of all, age, gender, height, and weight, which allows people to calculate their BMI. And then questions like, has your doctor ever told you you have diabetes or that you have cancer, excluding skin cancers? Do you have difficulty uh, pushing or pulling a large object like a chair? Do you have any like memory problems or difficulty bathing or showering? And so based on those 12 questions, people got points depending on the answer. And then you had a sort of scoring thing where the number of points they had corresponded to their risk of dying within, within four years. 
So I think that's what is sort of appealed to people is you, you, you sort of got this, uh, you know, there were questions that you could answer easily and then you got some, um, some number. And I forget if you were at the highest risk, what was it? 50% chance of dying? Within- yeah, I think the highest risk group was about, you know, 64% chance of dying. And the subsequent work really actually, uh, we looked at how well it predicted 10-year mortality. Oh, and yeah. I would say it, uh, it does even better at 10 years um, because um, at four years, there's actually not that many people who are at the highest risk group. But while, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, when you look out uh, further, then it spreads out that um, high risk group much better. So um, I think so far, uh, the, the test has uh, done pretty well. I think this is an area that's continually evolving. Um, and there's a lot of interest in, you know, is there a magical blood test? Can we look at genetics? What are the things that uh, kind of additional things that we can look at to uh, make better uh, predictions? And I would say so far, it's looked, um, the, the, the index has done pretty well. I think there are probably maybe uh, at the edges, things that we could do better, but the combination of um, demographic risk factors like age and gender and chronic conditions and functional impairments, putting those three things together really seems to be important to accurately predict mortality in a wide range of older adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, coming back to, to your study and this index, the group that had the second highest number of points, you know, the maximum number of points people could get was 14 mm-hmm. and the next was 13. And so they, it looks like they had a, a 54% you know, mid fifties to sixty percent chance of of uh, dying within the next four years. You were saying earlier that you know one might use this information to decide whether it's worth doing something like like cancer screening. And in your experience, if you tell people that they have a fifty percent chance that they might die within the next four years, does that change how they feel about something like cancer screening? Because uh, you know, have, have you gotten a sense of like at what ranges people sort of feel like, oh, I should change what I'm doing. It, it, it's amazing to me that, um, you know, how um, variable, how um, individual everybody is. And, and on some level, oh, it makes me realize that, you know, all information is used to, uh, it's much e- easier to use information that confirms what you really want to do anyway. <laughs> Than mm-hmm. to change what you want to do. So I've definitely had patients where you know they've hated getting cancer screening. You know whether it's the colonoscopy or whether it's the screening mammograms. And when I tell them, well, you know this it really makes it so that uh, it probably doesn't make sense anymore. And they're like they don't hear much of anything else. They're like, oh, thank goodness I don't have to do that again. And they are just so relieved that they don't that I'm not recommending that they do something um, that they didn't want to do. Um, and others are taken aback and say, you know, uh, I've been doing this for the last 20 years. How come you're telling me this isn't that I shouldn't do this anymore? And then it really um, requires a, um, a conversation at that point about how um, my at this point, my focus is on fo- is on doing the things that are most likely to help you get what's most important to you, whether that's living independently, whether that's minimizing pain so you can go out and garden, whether that's doing, everybody has kind of the things that really is most important to them. And my goal is to try to make sure that they are able to do that for as long as possible. And when we have something like cancer screening or some other things that maybe that's fairly unlikely to help them achieve those goals, my feeling is that, you know, our time and our ability to take, you know, medications is limited. We should focus on the stuff that's most important. And that's the way that I really um, like to talk about, you know, this information tells us this is unlikely to help you achieve those goals. And so I am going to try to focus on the things that are most likely to help you achieve your goals. Yeah, yeah. No, that's um, so important and such a, a foundation of what we do in in geriatrics and hopefully we'll just expand to more of, uh, of medicine. So let's come back to this question of life expectancy. So how do you explain to people the relationship between the idea of 
prognosis and and life expectancy and then also like how exactly can we predict somebody's life expectancy especially when they don't have a particular disease that we've studied a ton the the way that i explain and i have to say i've been i used the word prognosis a lot when i was younger um uh, but i've been using it less because it feels to me less um specific so I view prognosis as more as the more general term. Um, you can think about prognosis for um, you, when you may need to go into an assisted living facility or a nursing home or the prognosis for how um, long you'll be able to continue to um, uh, walk around the block. Um, the, and obviously, you can also talk about prognosis for mortality of when is it most likely that you're um, that your uh, uh, when is uh, a date of death kind of most likely, and that life expectancy feels like a much more precise term where I think everybody recognizes pretty immediately that we're talking about what is the uh, likelihood time left that you have. What is the most likely? How long we think you're going to live? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so say more about that, because uh, how good are we at, at uh, specifying that? So I think uh, what I would say is uh, not great. Um, and I think this is uh, a, an issue that comes back um, uh, that, that we deal with uh, frequently, which is that there is a lot of uncertainty. Um, the flip side is that what we do in medicine all the time, there is a lot of uncertainty. And so examples that I would give is when we decide to choose one course of action in the hospital, um, we are doing that because on average, most patients in that situation are going to do better with this course of action than another course of action. None of us, no doctors have, you know, great crystal balls to know, well, this person, there are many patients who probably would do fine with no intervention, um, but we don't know exactly who those are. And so um, in general, we do the thing that is going to work best for the most patients most of the time. And so I think all of these prediction tools like life expectancy, what we're doing is um, saying that for most people like you, uh, whether it's your age, your um, suite of uh, chronic conditions, your level of disability, most people like you, this is what is going to happen most of the time. That doesn't necessarily mean that that will definitely happen. Um, and there's certainly many, many examples of how people who are predict predicted to have X uh, life expectancy ended up having either a much shorter or a much longer one. Um, the one thing that I will say is, that is different, uh, that is important to remember, though, is that when we don't use these um, uh, uh, official tools to predict what we know, what we've seen time and time again, is that both doctors and patients are terrible at kind of guessing or eyeballing it by themselves, and that on average, these sorts of models do better, are closer to what you what actually happens than. Um, doctors or or, uh, or patients kind of making their best guess. Right, right. Yeah. And I think you're getting at something that's that's really important that I find people often get confused about, which is that that even a sort of like well-created prediction tool, and that's what a lot of your research has been, and even those 12 questions, you know, with the points is a type of prediction tool, ends up with kind of a, an estimate or something, right? That, well, we're pretty sure you have a, that for people like you, half of them will be alive in four years and half won't. And that's still useful information. That's different than our best guess in looking at our, our data is that 90% of you will be alive in four years and 10% won't. But that you still can't make an exact prediction for a single individual. And then, you know, in terms of clinically, we might tell people, well, there's a good chance you could get quite sick and die within the next few years versus there's a very, you know, small chance for you and I being relatively young adults in good health. It's a fairly small chance. And and that there's a, so that even a well sort of created prediction has this inherent 
you know, uncertainty because sometimes, we, you know, when we, we tell people for hospice, for instance, right, the doctor has to think you're likely to die within six months. People, mm -hmm. people think we've told them like, it's six months. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that, uh, that people think we can be more exact than we are, but that there's still a difference in, in using a well, good grounds for, for making a good guess, I guess, yeah. versus when, when doctors or patients wing it, which mm -hmm. um, I think the research has shown is, is, is often uh, wildly inaccurate, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think wildly inaccurate is, is the, the correct, um, is, is the, an accurate uh, depiction of what the studies have shown. It was like we, um, both doctors and patients have a tendency to be optimistic, several, uh, optimistic meaning we have a tendency to estimate, overestimate life expectancy by several fold. And so kind of if somebody's life expectancy is a year, kind of the average patient um, doctor expectations are can be you know three times that um, and generally uh, more often than not using these indexes leads to closer uh, leads to estimates that are closer to the truth um, and I do want to get back to what you mentioned because I think it's a really subtle but important point which is that uh, all doctors can do in terms of these predictions and also in terms of many of the decisions that uh, we make is that we don't know what is going to happen to a, a given an individual patient. The, in almost all cases, we are working with the averages of for most people in your situation, this is what usually happens. And therefore, this is why we recommend this course of treatment because that's what ends up working the best most of the time. But it is absolutely um, does not mean if we say this is what's most likely to happen, that that will not necessarily happen to you because everybody is a little bit different. Um, I think the wrong um, takeaway from that is to just give up, throw up one's hands and say, you know what, the future is ultimately unknowable and therefore we can't try to do anything. Um, I would say that um, we should c keep trying to figure out what is most likely to happen as we figure out more tests, more um, as the science gets better. I think our prediction is continually improving and that will help us make better and better decisions in the future. Right. Yeah. I also often tell people to hope for the best, but, you know, plan for uh, either what's likely or, you know, what's um has more than a trivial chance of happening. So, yeah. uh, so for instance, you know, it's likely that lots of, of, of older people will eventually experience, you know, difficulty driving or some difficulty being at home and will need some form of help. You know, that's fairly likely. And then maybe falling in your home and sustaining a serious injury is, you know, 20%. So I just guessed at that. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I would say, you know, it's, it's not that it's like a majority likelihood, but since it's a non-trivial event and there's a non-negligible chance that it could happen, it's mm -hmm. much more likely than my falling and hitting my head in my house, which also could happen. You know, I'm like, so think about those too, because we don't know that it's going to happen, but it just seems worth considering and planning for. Yeah. And the, the one thing that I was going to interject is like, uh, and the, the hard part about all of this is, of course, nobody wants to think about um, these negatives that are possible or even likely. And 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 recognizing that, you know, one of the things, kind of the ways that I approach this is to say when patients are focusing on the positives and trying to be hopeful, and I say, you know, I really hope that that happens too. But I, you know, part of my job as the doctor is to let you know about what's most likely. And I think we should spend some time on thinking about that as well. And this is maybe is what you were saying about, you know, hoping for the best, but preparing for not necessarily the worst, but what's most likely, and just cast it in that I don't want to be the downer either, but I've seen too many situations where patients and families really didn't want to think about the hard, uncomfortable stuff. And when it happens, everybody is in crisis mode because we didn't actually do the uncomfortable, hard work up front that could have made this much more... Um, um, much better for everybody involved because we were just were um, uh, because it was unpleasant and uh, and I think being the that voice of 
um, a trusted guide maybe uh, of, situ- of somebody who has seen these situations before and that it really works out better for everyone involved if we can it's not fun it's not this is not a fun thing to th- talk about or think about but that it works out better if we actually kind of um, uh, go through the the hard work really of thinking about what's most important what's most likely and how can we try to uh, help you achieve what's important for as long as possible Right. And then to sort of identify things that are, are likely, then we come back to prognosis and our ability to have at least some sense of what's likely to happen or what the, the person's future years hold. So you mentioned earlier that there are some forms of medical care that really uh, don't make sense or should be reconsidered in light of, of somebody uh, probably really having a kind of more limited life expectancy than, than everybody else. And how we define limited probably varies. But what are some examples of medical care that is commonly delivered that should be reconsidered if we think that an older person's not likely to live more than than a few years? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for um, that question. I think the, the first thing that comes to mind um, that you mentioned uh, up front is uh, intensive control of sugars in diabetes. Mm. And again, the, the, the thought process behind that is uh, very similar to cancer screening um, in that what we find is that when we control sugars really well in patients, um, what we're doing is preventing lots of bad things, but it actually takes many, many, many years. Uh, what we see is that decreases in uh, things like overall death and heart attacks and strokes, that takes many years, definitely over five and probably closer to 10 for us to really see those benefits. And so if somebody's life expectancy is quite limited, we know that trying to control sugars really tightly makes people at much higher risk for low blood sugars, which not only feels horrible, but it actually increases their risk of falling and increases their risk of lots of bad things. And so as patients- Interfere with their thinking too, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as patients get older and more frail, one of the strong recommendations now that all the societies like the American Diabetes Association and AGS, the American Geriatric Society has uh, come out with is that as patients- uh, Um, get more frail, um, that what we should be doing is slowly liberalizing their diabetes regimen to allow their sugars to run a little bit higher. Because if we try to keep it that low, we're putting them at much higher risk for these immediate bad things. um, And the their benefits of the long-term good things is probably they're unlikely to enjoy those um, long-term good things. So um, that is definitely something that uh, I would uh, strongly recommend. And, and very briefly, what about the person who say is 89, but uh, doesn't feel frail, you know, still can walk several miles and totally independent with their activities? Yeah. And I think this is one of those. Not somebody who has a limited life expectancy. You know, I feel like this comes up sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's, this is one of the situations where we have, uh, where a quantitative um, prediction methods are, are uh, prediction models are really helpful because the, the person that you described is kind of unusual. You know, most 89-year-olds are not um, doing that well, but they there are definitely a few out there. And so- yeah, they'd be when, in like the top 20% sort of exactly. 89-year-olds. Yeah. And so uh, when you find some of these unusual people, if you have a well-developed and well-calibrated index, they'll be able to give you an estimate of um, what their life expectancy is and therefore whether it makes sense to do something like this. Um, uh, the the uh, the tighter um, glucose control or the cancer right. screening because that was part of the reason for your work also is that age by itself is kind of not a great way to classify people and I feel like that's been a huge part of your work and others in the in the division is that beyond age it's you know these other signs of your kind of overall um, function and ability to do things right yeah so I think that's a, a great point and and I'm glad that that you brought up. I feel like one of the uses one of the most important uses of our work is kind of battling against the uh, what people have called cookbook medicine or one size fits all medicine. 
one of the things that's kind of uh, one of the unfortunate things that's happened, I think, in the last 20 years in medicine is that things have become much more algorithmic where, okay, if you're between the ages of 50 and 75, you're supposed to get a colonoscopy. If you're between the ages of 50 and 70, you're supposed to get breast cancer screening. If you're between the, and things are all driven by, well, if X, then you're supposed to get this. If you're over the age of 65, you're supposed to get this. Um, and what we have uh, really focused on is that that may be that may work for most patients in that age group, but we can do a better job with that. Even if you're within the ages of uh, 50 and 75, if you have lots of chronic conditions and lots of disability, you're actually, um, unfortunately, much sicker than the average person in that age. And so you're unlikely to be helped by this. And so I view uh, thinking about prognosis and life expectancy as a way of getting around this um, age-based, algorithm-based uh, medicine and really individualizing decisions for, for patients and so that you know, the, even the 89-year-olds, most 89-year-olds, I would say absolutely shouldn't get some of these tests. Um, but for an especially healthy one, maybe that would be okay. Um, it, and conversely, you may have people who are, you know, 65, most 65 year olds absolutely should get this, but you know, unfortunately he's a really sick 65 year old, maybe it doesn't make sense. And so uh, our work, um, really helps people to individualize care, um, rather than just looking at the age to make, um, many of these decisions. Right. Right. So, uh, I want to come back actually to, to more of the types of medical care that could be reconsidered. But before we do that, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the website you created, ePrognosis, along with some of our UCSF geriatrics colleagues. So, you know, what is ePrognosis.org and what were you and the others hoping to achieve and, and what can people find there right now? Yeah, so um, it started out as a, uh, a compendium of all uh, geriatric mortality indexes. So as you can imagine, there are things, uh, thing, a mortality prediction index that works well for patients in clinic may not work as well for patients in the nursing home. Well, I, I can imagine that, but that's actually not obvious to everybody. So, so yeah, so first yes. of all, you, you collected lots of them and then people, and, and that when you're using one of these indexes, you want to find one that's kind of about people similar to yourself or the person you're concerned about. And it sounds like some of our broad categories is we have some for people who are in the hospital, some for people who are in the nursing home, yeah, people who are still uh, what we call living in the community, which basically means they, uh, they live at home or I think assisted living counts as the community also. Yeah. So what I would say is that before the before we did this work, one of the things that we realized is that even well-meaning doctors who want to incorporate prognosis, these research studies, these indexes were published in journals, you know, in one of, you know, 20 journals and it would take so much time for a doctor to look this up, try to calculate a life expectancy or a mortality prediction, and then apply it to a patient that it was really not feasible for anyone to do that. And so what we did was what's called a systematic review. So we looked at all the uh, medical literature over the past 20 years, um, and then looked at what were all the geriatric mortality indexes that were uh, that were developed and published. And so we identified a total of, um, I think it was around 15. I should know this, but I've forgotten. Um, and okay. then we identified- We can post a link to your review on the- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so we, we identified a whole bunch of um, a geriatric mortality indexes. And then we went the, the next step of actually translating those research papers into the website. And so if you say, oh, I am interested in hospital mortality prediction for patients who are, for somebody who is, you know, between the ages of, you know, uh, 65 to 80, then it'll say, oh, this is the index that you should use. And then it will go right to uh, a web page of that index and it will say, you know, uh, here are the uh, eight questions that you need to answer, for example. And then once you answer the questions, it'll give you the output from that research paper. So it was a way of kind of having a, um, I guess, a one-stop shop for uh, geriatric mortality prediction. Okay. And, um, but it's kind of grown beyond that, right? So I'm looking at it right now. There's, there's also a kind of cool tool for cancer screening. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah. Um, so I think the cancer screening tool was the, the, the second thing that we did, which was, you know, uh, as I talked about, the, um, the way that life expectancy should really inform decision making is when we compare it to the time to benefit. And cancer screening was where we had the best information for what, how long after cancer screening do we see benefit? And it's about 10 years. And so what we did was we married those two concepts together in this uh, app and now um, website um, so that once you answer these questions and we estimate a life expectancy, if your life expectancy is uh, much higher than the 10 years, than the time to benefit for cancer screening, uh, the app um, and the website will say, in, in most cases, cancer screening is recommended because the benefits of cancer screening substantially outweigh the harms. If, on the other hand, your life expectancy is much less than 10 years, it's, uh, the, the output would be, we generally do not recommend cancer screening in this sorts of situations because the harms of cancer screening are much higher than the likely benefits. And then when it's right about in the middle, we have a middle ground statement which says, it is unclear what the best course of action is, the patient's values and preferences, whether they don't mind medical interventions or they hate going to the doctor, um, those sorts of factors should be the dominant factor in deciding whether this patient should have cancer screening. So we tried to marry the life expectancy prediction part and the time to benefit to um, inform a specific decision about whether the a patient, older patient should get cancer screening. Right. Yeah. And having uh, looked at both of them recently, it seems like the cancer screening one in, in a way is sort of more user-friendly for the average person has these nice graphics kind of showing you, you know, that over the next X many years out of a hundred people, this many are likely to die in general. And yeah, this many to get cancer or be saved by the cancer screening. I forget which, uh, which it is. And I remember when you, when you and our colleagues were first conceiving this, there was this debate about whether it should be available to the general public or not. And, you know, how did you make that decision? I think it's a, we've touched on some of the points already. I think the, there are I would say, you know, reasonable arguments on both levels, uh, on both sides. The the argue, I think the the best argument for not having this available to everybody is the fact that this is fairly subtle and nuanced information. Uh, I think the the biggest uh, point is one that you already brought up about how this is not a. Um, we do not have a crystal ball and we it's don't- It's not an exact predictive science. Yeah, we don't know what is going to happen to you. What, it, we, what we, this is saying is that if there were 100 people exactly like you, exactly your age, with exactly your suite of chronic conditions and your level of disability, then what we know from looking at this large database of Americans is that on average, these patients do this in the future. And and so, we don't even usually have a, a database of people exactly like you. We're like, <laughs> we have this database of people who are kind of sort of like you. We're like this, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there you know, are. This is what happened to them. <laughs> yeah. There, there are, so there are many caveats, uh, and so there's many inexactness. And when we uh, spit out a number from these um, uh, from these mortality indexes, it is hard to convey to the uh, lay public uh, exactly all of those caveats. And so that I think was the primary reason that we were nervous about just having it, uh, you know, widely publicly available. Um, not surprisingly, I mean, I think anybody who knows the internet w would not be surprised by this. But when we asked our community, everyone was like, of course, you, ha you can't, <laughs> you can't hide information from the people. People, people want to know more. Um, and you can, you, it's up to you to try to uh, be clear about what the limitations of your information are, but but you should absolutely have it uh, available. And so we've been uh, more and more. Uh, initially, we had a, a little um, button saying that you had to say that you were a healthcare professional to kind of access the site, but we got rid of that a long time ago um, because I think everyone just found it annoying and and everybody wanted 
easier access to the tools that we had developed. So, um, I, so I think you know th that is the age that we live in, where everybody wants more information. Um, I think, like so many things, it's it's uh, you need want, you need to be uh, a sophisticated consumer of the inf information and we try to be i think you know we are more technical than most <laughs> and we we try to be very clear on what this can and cannot say about you um but uh it, it has been and we have become more and more open to kind of everybody accessing the information right yeah and do you have a sense of whether some uh people are using it to figure out whether they should continue with their own cancer screening or of of who's Who's using it and are they making use of these tools? Yeah, so I think uh, we regularly track um, uh, the usage through things like um, uh, Google Analytics. And the thing that I think is most um, rewarding and uh, for us is the fact that, you know, when we first opened the website, we got a lot of hits. I think it was like about a half a million in the first week. Um, and so it was, uh, and it was the combination of, the JAMA paper coming out, the systematic review coming out, that was covered by um, AP Medical News and kind of got, and so all of these articles had a link to the website. And so people were just kind of curious and linked through and kind of did a, answered a couple of questions and figured out what the life expectancy for their grandmother or, or whoever it may be. What uh, the estimate was. Yeah, the exactly. Estimate, not the exact. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so... Uh, we had a huge kind of bolus right up front, but what we're finding over the last couple of years is we're seeing kind of the same IP addresses pop up again and again. And one of the things that that uh, that we uh, know is actually happening is that there are uh, increasingly numbers of mostly geriatricians, but some general internists as well, who know of this website and go back to it when they feel like it's appropriate for a given patient. So oh, we have good. many returning users, and this is actually was this is our you know dream come true as as a academic uh, physician researcher, my goal is to help other doctors make better decisions, take right. better care of their patients. And, and uh, even so though- What's the, the point of a tool if nobody's using it reliably or exactly. regularly? And now yeah. you've, you've uh, created and put it in a place where people can, clinicians can easily use it and keep yeah. using it. And, and even though as, as uh, you know, there's a part of me that was, you know, it's like, uh, it's always um, um, gratifying to have, you know, half a million people come and visit your website. Those weren't the people that we were really trying to reach. And I feel like now we are, uh, we, it's continuing to be uh, useful to those, um, the, to, to uh, practicing clinicians uh, taking care of patients. And hopefully we're making the care a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's also now a section on e-prognosis about communicating prognosis. And we sort of talked a little bit earlier about how this is this is kind of a tricky topic to bring up, right? The fact that you're thinking about how long somebody is likely to live and that it may no longer be, um, I think what we assume it is earlier in life, which is, you know, for all intents and purposes, infinite. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, oh. just like, you know, I'm likely to keep living for years and years is I think what most people are usually ex expecting. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Like, so what are the pitfalls that come up when, when discussing this. And I, I guess, especially, you know, if, uh, so I know there are a lot of people who are concerned about their parents or older relatives mm -hmm. and who have questions about that, about, uh, what to expect. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about how they could, you know, effectively bring that up either with clinicians or with other family members. Um, Boy, that's a hard question. And, and by when, when I say that, that means I don't have a good answer. And I'd love to hear if there's a, a great answers from somebody else. Um, but what I will say that this is one of those areas that it is amazing. It continually amazes me how much variation there is across different people. So there are some patients that I've been you know, I, I know I should bring this up as their doctor, but it is very difficult. Um, and then when I do, I've, I've definitely had, you know, one uh, patient tell me, I can't believe it's taking you this long to talk to me about this. You know, all of, I've had two good friends die in the last year. This is not something that is, this is something that I think about all the time. And, and you know, I, like she was waiting for me 
to bring it up the whole time. And I work on this problem, uh, on this topic. And so there are some patients who are like, yes, please, let's talk about this. I, I've been thinking about it and no one's been talking to me about it. Um, and then there are other patients who are like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's no reason to talk about this. This makes me really uncomfortable and I don't see why it's going to help me. Um, and so it really is, um, it is highly, highly variable on uh, on how best to approach this. And so the way that I do, uh, way that I talk about this is number one, kind of, um, and many of these are principles from um, principles of communication and palliative care and hospice medicine, where the issues of, you know, limited life expectancy and, and you know, forecasting uh, death uh, is an important part of the, the work um, that um, palliative uh, care doctors have to do. But the first thing that I do is to kind of get a sense of whether they're comfortable talking about this and saying, you know, um, oftentimes bringing up whether somebody's recently been hospitalized, whether they've had some recent medical complications and, and asking, you know, um, it makes me wonder, given all the things that you've gone through recently, whether we should talk about um, what's most likely to happen in the future. And so allow, hopefully, a less threatening uh, way of kind of entering into that topic and seeing how amenable they are. My overall feeling is that my goal is to try to make the best decision for the patient. And I don't think we necessarily have to talk about, you know, your calculated quantitative life expectancy is 4.3 years with, you know, a confidence interval of 2.1 to 8.2 or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, we don't have to talk about that. We can talk about, you know, given all the things that are going on, I think the thing that we need to focus on is X. And what that means is I don't think we need to do Y. And that may be, and that I feel like gets to what in my mind is my ultimate goal is to try to provide the best care uh, and not necessarily beat them over the head with something that is unpleasant and that, that they don't want to talk about. Um, so it, it's, it's very, I feel like these conversations takes, can take so many different flavors. It's very hard for me to say, this is how you do it. Um, but the uh, website, uh, the ePrognosis website and the communications tab that you mentioned, we tried to have a couple of conversations where we talk about prognosis and life expectancy and how that may, uh, you know, how uh, some, some uh, strategies for, for talking about that effectively. But it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. challenging. Well, it's a great addition. You know, I wasn't aware of it until uh, I think I just noticed it in the past year. But uh, but yes, for those in the audience who might be interested, you, you guys have put up several videos kind of demonstrating, discussing um, certain topics like cancer screening or goals of care with, with a patient. And then you also have sort of um, some other specifics like discussing the lag time to benefit, yeah. you know, which could be useful for anyone who wants to learn more about uh that concept in the interest of time, I'm not going to ask you to talk more about it, but so important, you know, that um, that one doesn't benefit necessarily from some kind of medication or prevention treatment right away. It might take a while. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice that you and your colleagues have added this rich content. Now, I'm not aware of any resources online to help people talk with their older parents, but I think some of the basic principles of, of you know, raising it gently and trying to get a sense of how the, whether the person has been thinking about it and their receptiveness. I think some of those general principles apply to most situations and can be used. So, so it's great for that to be there. Now, what would you say the average person does need to know about his or her prognosis? Do you have a, a thought on that? Um, and since we know doctors often won't bring it up, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, so... Yeah, I would say, hmm, do I need to ask about my prognosis? <laughs> yeah, my, my overall sense is that I don't think it's something that uh, I would kind of go one step downstream. What I think is most important for uh, older adults uh, and, and loved ones, families of older adults should remember is that um, there are, as you get older and as you get more frail, there are many things that we thought that you would be taking for the rest of your life that we should change 
as as you get older. And so, you know, people talk about, well, you know, the doctor said that I'm going to be needing to take this for the rest of my life. Um, that, that may have been true 20 years ago, but I think increasingly now we recognize that a lot of the medicines that were started in middle age probably should be tapered off as you get older, whether these are diabetes medicines, sometimes cholesterol medicines, sometimes blood pressure medicines, but these are all um, and so the expectation, I think part of what makes it harder for us to um, slow down or stop some of these medicines are when uh, patients and families fear that um, stopping to do, uh, doing less of these sorts of medical interventions means that they're going to have less care, right? When they feel they need more and more care um, because they're getting more frail. And the transition that I think good geriatrics care provides is that we're we may be giving you fewer pills, but we're going to do uh, we're going to work harder to provide you better care. Whether that is you know more home health visits, more um, physical therapy. Th these are maybe not more pills or maybe not more traditional medical tests, but more care aimed at helping you achieve the goals that are most important to you. Right. Um, and, it, and it sounds like this, you know, the part of this is also just not so much thinking, what's my prognosis, but looking at anything you're doing for your health and regularly asking your health provider. So is this still, you know, likely to benefit me? And, and, you know, how likely is it that this is going to benefit me? Because uh, as you said, some of these treatments, especially things that are partly related to prevention, like even, you know, medications to lower cholesterol, Mm -hmm. Generally, you know, they take a few years before people are likely to benefit from them. And so as people get older, especially if their health is declining, they often reach a point at which the likelihood of benefit is, is very, very small. Yeah. And so it may not be worth the risk of side effects or, you know, the burden, the cost of the medication, the hassle of taking it or anything else that is part of the, uh, the work or downside of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think what ends up happening is that as you get older and more frail, there are many, uh, your risk of um, side effects or adverse effects from medications also goes up. Your liver doesn't work quite as well. And so the drug accumulates in the system more. Uh, your kidneys may not work as well. And that uh, leads to the same sort of kind of drug accumulation. You may develop additional diseases. And so there's more a chance for drug disease interactions. So for all of these reasons, as you get older and more frail, the harms or the risks of the medicines keep going up while the benefits generally stay flat or go down. And so for all of these reasons, I think it's important to recognize that as patients get older, really what we should be doing is an active um, kind of shift away from um, traditional medical stuff like medications to um, more supportive services um, for uh, as you get, as you need more help whether it's you know, making sure that your home has enough grab bars and enough safety uh, features. Um, and, and on some level, one of the things that this gets to is, is what I started out by saying that you know, 50 years ago, maybe even longer than that, the world was pretty different where a lot of people who are in their middle age um, were very functional and then got a terrible um, a health event, whether it's a huge heart attack or um, cancer or stroke, and really fairly quickly um, died. And our medical interventions, there weren't nearly as many. And so it was, there wasn't much, uh, there weren't many older patients who were living with a lot of chronic conditions. But because of the success of you know the heart doctors with the catheterizations and newer cancer medicines, we're having more and more people with this long, prolonged um, uh, uh, period of many chronic conditions and disability. And the way to take care of those patients is really quite different than the patients who are younger and who have just uh, one sort of uh, disease. And I think one way of improving our care is to make sure that, you know, you shouldn't, cho you shouldn't treat 80-year-olds like you treat 50-year-olds. Um, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> and you need to uh, be able to account for the, not just the, the uh, one disease, but the, the many diseases that, uh, that are often going on 
at the same time and really be cognizant of the fact that just because that this is uh, just because a drug was started and made a lot of sense 15 years ago doesn't mean it still makes sense. Right, right. Yeah. And it also occurs to me, you know, in, in listening to you that um, the, the sort of question of prognosis and what to expect makes me think of, of advanced care planning, this process of reviewing your health and then checking on who would make decisions for you if you were too sick to make decisions and providing some guidance for, for that person. Because part of that process is supposed to be to review your, your health situation and what to expect with your health provider. And so that's a recommendation that I make to people is if your provider hasn't brought it up to regularly sort of speak up and say, so can you help us understand what we, um, what kind of declines or crises we should plan for, for the next few years? Because if then they say, well, you know, like you've had a lot of hospitalizations, you're older, this, fortunately you could get quite sick and possibly die within the next few years, then that might be a good moment to say, so all these things I'm doing, do I still need to, you know, are those still worth doing or what should we focus on? Which brings me to one of the key points right now for the big effort for age-friendly health systems is to have a big focus on what matters mm-hmm. to people and that people articulate what matters partly on their understanding of what's going on with their health, right? Yeah. So we have to help, you know, we have a, to have that conversation about how things seem to be going right now and what we think might happen over the next few years so that people can then decide in light of that what matters and whether it still seems to be a good idea to have the cancer screening or the cholesterol medicine or the uh, intensive diabetes treatment. And are there others that are worth reconsidering? Um, I think those are the ones that I would focus on at this point um, because they're the ones that have the longest time to benefit and kind of the the clearest uh, potential for harms. Um, I think the uh, I really like the um, what matters um, movement um, mm-hmm. because um, and uh, as and, and in contrast, I would you know contrast that with the advanced care planning. I feel like advanced care planning in the, um, I understand why it has evolved this way, but it still makes me gives me pause. Uh, advanced care planning has become way too much of a checkbox procedure. Like, right. has you has somebody signed a, this form and designated a durable power of attorney? Or it becomes like it's a quality metric, and so everybody has to fill out this form and they sign it. And and if you're terribly time. ill and yeah. on life support, exactly. you know, should we or should we not pull the plug? Yeah, <laughs> you know? so all or your family. These, <laughs> yeah. So all of these things are. Um, I understand that yes, it is sometimes helpful, um, but what is much more important is actually what I think the the what matters. Um, movement or, or campaign is really trying to get at, which is at any given point, we really should be talking to patients about what's most important to you. What are we trying to do? And it may be, oh, I want to, you know, I believe my life is a gift from God. And even if I am totally unable to inter- recognize my family and interact with anybody, I need to stay alive for as long as possible. That is a core religious belief. I've had patients who say that. Um, whereas other patients say, you know, if I can't um, go out and walk my dog, that's not living for me. Um, and they were absolutely serious about that. And so being able to talk to patients about what's most important to you and what and and once you have that information, it gives you so much um, it helps guide all the decision making. Well, if this is what's most important, then these are the things that we should do. And these other things actually probably aren't so important. And it helps us um, prioritize. Or what aren't are likely to get you what you wanted from your medical care. Yes. You know, I think that's one of the things I come back to is yeah. I don't think this is likely to help you get what you have said you wanted from your medical care. That medication isn't going to help you be walking your dog over the yeah. next few years. Yeah. No, I think that's, it's, uh, it is very, and it goes back to, I think what I started off by saying, there's a lot more that we can do than we, what we should do. And then figuring out what are the things that we should do. Oftentimes the first part is asking the patient, what's most important, what matters to you. And then once we have that, that helps us prioritize, okay, of the, you know, 200 things that we can do, these are the four things that seem most likely to help you achieve your goals. Yes. And, and we discover what are those things partly by using your handy, your handy resources to get a good guess as to what to expect over the next few years.
right? Because that helps us determine whether somebody is likely to get the benefit they're hoping for out of a certain type of medical treatment, right? And so do you have any last suggestions for the audience or, or favorite resources to share? You know, besides e-prognosis, the one thing that I will give a plug, a shout out to is the New York Times blog called the New Old Age blog. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you can look at it. Um, it's done by a journalist um, that, you know, uh, uh, I've talked to a couple of times and she's always, I think, very uh, on the um, a very uh, uh, sophisticated and, and uh, an excellent writer. Yes, so, Paula Spann. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So she usually has a new post, you know, every couple of weeks, every week or so. Um, and I feel like all of the stuff that she's written really has been spot on. So I think that's a, a great um, blog to kind of keep an eye out on. Yeah, yeah. No, she has... Uh she's wonderful at sharing a lot of our geriatric concepts and the other journalist who does that quite a lot too right now is Judith Graham who also occasionally wrote for the new old age blog and now writes the navigating aging column for Kaiser health news. Oh, okay. So also good. Okay. Well say this, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about the amazing work that you've been doing. I think it's just fantastic to see how it's kind of starting to spread beyond geriatrics, this idea of just giving people tools to, to take an older person's context and preferences into consideration and just help tailor the care so that people get more of, uh, of what they need and what's likely to help and less of all that other stuff that is often available. But as you said, you know, just because we can do it doesn't mean that, that we should. Well, thank you so much and uh, for uh, inviting me to the show. And certainly, you know, as an academic, one of the things that I am always trying to figure out how to do is not just do good science and good research, but also to figure out how do I reach uh, more people so I can well, actually... Here we are. Um, You'll have yeah, to come back. <laughs> exactly. So thank well, you for giving me this platform. Thank you for the invitation. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.